Hello, friends. Welcome to episode three of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Jeremy Wade Barrier about his 12-year journey researching ancient manuscripts and writing his latest book, Witch Hunt in Galatia, a book providing a new perspective on ways to read and understand Paul's letter to the Galatians. In today's episode, Dr. Barry also talks with us about his research studying the Acts of Paul and Thecla, which was an ancient text passed around in the early church, which provided insight into Paul's travels with Thecla, a woman who preached the gospel, baptized people, and was later martyred. It's a fascinating story that shows the faith and preaching power of a woman in the early church, which many people don't know about or may have dismissed entirely. Further on in the episode, Dr. Barrier challenges us to read the Bible with a critical eye and to question those passages that trouble us, especially those discrepancies, contradictions, and other difficult texts that confuse or sometimes even upset us. He also shares reasons why many Christians are resistant to new insights and also scholarship on scripture and why it's super important for us to consider the latest research to help us better understand the culture and meaning behind biblical texts. And at the end of today's episode, I share five quick takeaways from today's conversation, as well as this week's growth challenge. All right, let's get to part one of our discussion with Dr. Jeremy Wade Barrier. So Dr. Jeremy Wade Barrier, thank you so much for being on the, on the podcast. Yeah, no trouble. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I saw that you did undergraduate work in mathematics and natural sciences, and I was really curious about what led you to move into studying the Bible and theology. Well, I guess I guess when I was an undergraduate student, I was actually a dual major. So I was very much getting into Greek classes and theology classes. And at the same time, I was pre-engineering. And so I continued both all the way up to the very end of my undergraduate. And then at uh, that point, it became a practical decision. I realized I could go ahead and finish with a mathematics and natural science degree. And uh, and then at that point, I had to decide whether or not I was going to continue down the engineering path uh, in grad school or on the theology path. And I ended up having a, uh, a professor who sort of tipped the scales for me. And uh, and I continued in uh, biblical studies and theology. That, that's super cool because oftentimes I find that people that kind of move into like a seminary or a program where you're going to study the Bible, you have like a humanities background or a languages background. And so it's very unique to have yeah. like that mathematics engineering side. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, hopefully it gives me a, diff- a different perspective. I, I don't know, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I see what you're saying. They do seem to be polar uh, opposites oftentimes. <laughs> so I noticed that your your new book that just came out called Witch Hunt in Galatia, Magic Medicine and Ritual and the Occasions of Paul's Letters to the Galatians. I read in your introduction that it took you 12 years of research and writing. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I guess I, I finished my Ph.D. in 2008. And so around during that last year that I was finishing that degree, I was also um, preparing uh, my dissertation to be published as a monograph and which happened and ended up happening in 2009. But it it was at that time I I had decided I really wanted to continue to pursue some other interests that I had. And it was during that time period that I started this uh, study. Uh, and really what got me into it was the study of the ancient idea of the evil eye. And so 
I, basically, I made the commitment that um, I really wanted to not continue my academic research like I had had to do my dissertation research, which means that I had I had two small children at the time, and my wife and I we we had two small kids, and and so I was doing most of my research before six a.m. and after eight p.m. and I was working during the day, Ooh. and uh, which was not enjoyable. So I really wanted to, it, it also occurred to me that being in the field of theology, uh, if you look at the pay scales uh, in, in academia, that uh, we and the uh, our, my fellow artists are on the lowest end of the pay scale. So I knew that I really wanted to love what I was doing or else I wasn't going to fool with it. Uh, when I started digging deeper into the subject, I was also not going to be in a hurry about it. Um, I guess what I'm saying is I didn't want to miss my the lives of my kids, and I wanted to continue to love what I was doing and just dig into it at my own pace. And so, you know, three months turns into a year, turns into two years, turns into 12. Yeah, no, I mean, it totally makes sense. Like, you have a family, and you're trying to balance, like, your own personal pursuit, yeah. studying Galatians, working on this thesis. At the same time, you have, a, you have a family that you want to be caring for and taking care of and also not missing all those special moments. So that totally makes sense yeah. to me. You know, in higher ed, and I do think, too, that higher ed has uh, is, is been trending towards the direction of bankruptcy uh, at several different levels. But one thing that's shifted a lot, too, is uh, scholars are, are, are actually demanded to be publishing frequently. So what that means is, just across the board, Academics are required to publish more material than they actually have that's probably good, mm. if that makes any sense. Uh, basically, scholars will talk about, that's not my best work, that's not my best work. This is something I really cared about. So it's almost like for every three things that they're publishing, or every five things, only one of them is actually probably really worth the time. Uh, and so I thought, well, too, this might be sort of a... I mean, I think I've been frequently publishing, but I've actually tried to trend in the direction of, well, let me try to do something a little more qualitative uh, instead of quantitative. Yeah, it seems like very unfair to to require that professors need to be constantly publishing, because like you said, mm -hmm. you yeah. can't give priority to everything that you're doing, and professors are also teaching classes, they're doing their own research, and sometimes if you're being forced to put out a paper, it, yeah, it may not be your best work. So this one was something that you were super passionate about. You wanted to really take your time. And I think also, do you feel, feel like an added pressure when you're writing about the Bible? Um, I do, um, in a lot of different directions. Uh, I live in Alabama, so what does that mean? People in Alabama, um, it's, it's a very, uh, I guess you could say, traditional way of viewing the Bible and Scripture, very more often than not, fundamentalist doesn't matter which religious group you're with. They're, they're pretty hardcore about what they believe. And so that places attention uh, upon me. So, and then on top of that, uh, one thing that I've noticed too, because I, I've actively been a participant in the Christian church. So I, I have been actively engaged in ministry as well as academics. And I've noticed that most people who attend church, or at least the people that I've interacted with, most of them already feel like that uh, the Bible is something they already know. 
and they've already mastered it. So when you go into a church, everyone kind of like old news. So the idea of introducing new ideas or from a different perspective uh, isn't taken well. So especially when you're trying to approach um, writings that some people consider scripture, you're actually looking at them like in this book through the lens of, no, let's look at this as if it's not scripture at all. And let's just look at some 2,000-year-old documents, mm-hmm. uh, letters that we have here, technically speaking, and and see what we can make of it. Yeah. Uh, and so from the start, talking about 2,000-year-old Jewish documents or Jewish writings, <laughs> that just that right there <laughs> is probably more than people would want to uh, accept. <laughs> and, and it's super hard. This is why being a critical reader of the Bible is very difficult because – there is so much background. There's so much history. There's the culture aspect that when I when I come to the Bible at in the year 2020, like I'm coming with my American lens in Southern California in the denomination that I grew up in. That's how I'm reading it. And if I don't have like the proper study tools, if I don't understand the languages, I don't have like understanding of like the culture, the purpose of the book. Like it's going to be very hard for me to interpret and make sense of what is actually happening here. Yeah, I think so. It's it's in, in fact, that's actually been a little bit of a bl- blessing in the skies. I've found that, um, I don't know, there, there's almost two different worlds going on, and they're not very closely connected. I'm not quite sure what to make of this at, at, a, at a broader level, but uh, there's academics talking about uh, biblical text, and then there's people in churches talking about it, and the two are not uh, engaging one another very often. I think that the point of engagement probably is through um, a minister or a pastor, but that even that depends on uh, whether or not he has any formal training, where he got his formal training. So what that means is some of these churches are just continuation, continuing generation to generation with very little uh, impact from these types of discussion. I do think there is uh, an impact, but oftentimes it might be 20, 30, 50, even 100 years delayed, and it's sort of a trickle-down trickle, trickle down effect. Mm. So, but, you know, I think this is not unique to, to, to this field, though. It's, the, the thing that's curious to me is that because, because we know nothing about uh, battery technology um, and we don't really know what's happening uh, in the development of Teslas, uh, that's very current information that we all just sort of, or many of us, just assume we're ignorant about it. And whatever they tell us, we're fine with it. We accept it. Uh, and that's true of a lot of fields. It's true of medicine. It's true of science. But when it, once again, when it comes to the study of the Bible, it's not something we so quickly accept that there's actually cutting-edge information coming out about the Bible. And uh, we felt like, I think many people feel like that, that whatever we know about it, uh, we've known for quite some time. It's a settled issue. But yet it's it's actually just as dynamic uh, in the pouring out of new information as any other field would be. And I feel like sometimes, I, I, I guess like based on the denomination you're in or the tradition you're part of, you may or may not be willing to accept newer understandings yeah. of Scripture. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, so there, I think that, I think what, you, to me what you're, um, you're tapping into is the fact that there's a general resistance from the start. But but on top of that, um, let, let me just give an example. Um, not only is there a resistance to the information, but there is a general uh, lack of information about what's been happening. So 
let's take, for instance, what I wrote my dissertation on. It was on a writing from the second century called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. And um, some of the most important manuscripts for the Acts of Paul and Thecla uh, were found in the early part of the 20th century. However, all of these manuscripts were found and scholars worked on translating and all that kind of stuff, you know, to get it out to the public. However, to this day, there still has not been a publication of a critical text where it gives you the entirety of uh, the Acts of Paul and the Acts of Paul and Thecla. What, what am I trying to say? This very important early Christian document has yet to be formally mm. and officially presented to the public. In 2020, it still wow. hasn't happened. You know, and, and the causes for things like this sometimes are quite natural. Um, back in 2008, uh, I attended a, a Coptic school in Leipzig, Germany, for about three weeks. And one of the things that we learned there was really fascinating to me. If, if you can bear with this, it won't take me but No, please. Seconds. Why I was there was we were having a Coptic training school to uh, work with ancient manuscripts and Coptic. It's a language. Coptic is an Egyptian language. And so we're working with languages and getting better with these manuscripts. And at the same time, they're using us to work through all of their materials. And so I started to ask the question, why are you needing people to come look through your libraries in Leipzig to go through all of your manuscripts? Well, the reason for that is because most of the manuscripts and handwritten papyri that had come to Leipzig had come around the year of the late 1890s up through about 1930. And it came through one particular scholar who had brought all of it there. His name was Georg Steindorf. Well, Georg Steindorf was a Jew, and as tensions continued to increase in Germany, he realized that he needed to leave. So sometime in the 1930s, he and his family left, left Leipzig, came to the United States. And then, of course, World War II happened, uh, so on and so forth. Then the Cold War began, and Leipzig just so happens to be in East Germany. So what happened to all the manuscripts that he had brought back from Egypt during his career? They just sat there. Hmm. They sat there until the 1990s, wow. after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So in the 1990s, new scholars were coming in and starting to go through this stuff. What am I trying to say? There were actually tens of thousands of, of <clears throat> manuscripts wow. that had barely been looked at uh, in places like Vienna, places like Leipzig, and a number of other libraries. And so it's kind of like, well, just because of the unfolding of history, a lot of, a lot of this stuff hasn't been looked at, you know. So what does that mean? Well, that means that right now, from the end of the war, I mean, the, the, the fall of the, the end of the Cold War, all the way up to the present, there, as you can imagine, people are more interested in investing money into technology like Google than they are into digging through manuscripts. So there's still a lot to be done. It's just uh, it just takes time. Yeah, that is fascinating. And it's so cool that you actually got a chance to study some of these manuscripts. Yeah. What was yeah. what was that what was that like? Like being able to dig through some of these texts that no one's looked at before. Oh, it was great. It was really cool. Uh, we were divided into four groups. One of the groups was actually translating a text about an early Christian uh, saint, maybe martyr, that nobody ever heard of. Uh, that was going to be published. It's it's very specific information, but still, it's it's pretty cool to see that. Okay, so as you were kind of going through some of these documents and reading some of these different letters and writings, did it help you, did it add, I guess, a dimension to your understanding of 
that culture that was writing letters and, and passing things back and forth about what they believe God was saying? Yeah, I think so. Um, in what way? I don't know. Um, I don't know if I could really put my finger on exactly how, how it was impacting it. I guess it was sort of like um, a lot of this information, what happens is it's, I don't know, it's kind of like the impact of raindrops upon a garden <laughs> where what it actually means to the garden sometimes is difficult to ascertain, but um, I can't think of any shining examples anyway of directly how it impacted it other than just the, the whole general putting the hand, the manuscripts in your hands and looking at them or more strictly under glass. We we're holding glass, you know, uh, that, that encased the manuscripts. Mm. Just wow. seeing that yeah. is, really, is really interesting. Or well, seeing so uh, small bits of book binding, you know, where somebody by hand had used the needle and thread to actually make a book out of the materials. Just things like that are wow, cool. That's super cool. So one of the books you were looking at was called, was it written by Paul or people thought it was written by Paul? This Acts text that you're looking at? Uh, yeah, with my dissertation, the uh, it was... There was a book called The Acts of Paul. It's a lot like the book Acts of the Apostles, but it's kind of a separate account. Doesn't quite neatly fit with Acts of the Apostles. And I was looking at just one section of it. One section of it's called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And probably what's uh, most interesting about The Acts of Paul and Thecla is, number one, Thecla was a female martyr who traveled and worked with Paul. Mm -hmm. Paul had commissioned to go and preach and teach. That's very interesting. Secondly, it's our oldest description of what Paul looked like. Mm -hmm. uh, you can read about that in the text as well. That's really fascinating to see that that as well. But between those two things and a couple other odds and ends, it's a pretty fascinating old, old book. That's really interesting. What did it say that Paul might look like? It said that first of all, he he was he was bald. He had a unibrow, singular brow on his forehead. He had a hooked nose. Um, he he was his uh, he was bow legged, and oh. uh, then it says he had uh, the face of an angel at times. <laughs> mm, interesting. Yeah. That's a general description of Paul. How and interesting. Most of our, Early art looks like that. So the earliest image that came out oh. not too long ago from, from Rome, uh, that's essentially what Paul looks like. And how cool you got a chance to like study some of these texts and look at it under glass. Like, So was it during this time also that as you're looking at these texts that you were also beginning to work on what is now the book Witch Hunt in Galatia? It was um, the link. The link between all of it was my interest in Paul and uh, the legacy of Paul. So the Acts of Paul and the Acts of Paul and Thecla are sort of one person's interpretation of Paul into the second century. So I was just kind of curious about him, historically speaking, and his legacy. And uh, and then I was also so that kind of led me off in that direction in my dissertation. And so I kind of put aside this this other stuff related to witch hunt in Galatia. 
until I was done with that. And then I came back to it because I was just curious about some of the ideas that Paul might have believed and uh, what he was like. And uh, and that's that's kind of what led me into the study that is that I'm publishing now. Uh, for somebody who never read anything of Paul, never read any of his letters that are in the Bible, um, what would you say... Or how would you describe Paul to this person? Somebody who has an affection for him. Um, I don't think that he comes across as a very uh, likable person in general. I think he comes across as a very passionate person. He's intensely passionate. And we're looking at letters that he wrote. That's really most of what we have about him. There is the Acts of the Apostles, which gives a narrative account of his movements and his life. But ancient, uh, this (laughs) I'm making an apology for him. Ancient (laughs) letters in general... Uh, they oftentimes will overstate their cases to try to influence people, to persuade them. So what we have are his letters, and he's, he's a fairly harsh person uh, in, the, in his style of writing. Full of passion, uh, intense. Uh, he does have rich um, feelings about how people behave. He's very much into shaping the morality of uh, churches he's involved in. He feels like it is his job to shape these churches that he's put together. And, uh, of course, 2,000 years ago, all of his ideas about the roles of men and women are not the same as we would view them today. And so that comes out harshly uh, in the text, and I think people are really pinned him to the wall on that. However, there are moments of uh, what I would consider just extreme brilliance and loftiness in some of the ideas, especially when he starts uh, talking about ideas like love or uh, the magnificence of God. Just uh, beautiful, beautiful poetry. I like that description. I love that. And from my understanding, Galatians and maybe even First Thessalonians were written prior to the Gospels. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, they, that's right. Uh, it's been argued. I don't think it's been, uh, it's not conclusive among scholars, but Galatians uh, is potentially the earliest writing of early Christianity. It's the earliest Christian writing we have. Mm. Uh, however, most scholars, I think, would say that Thessalonians comes was written before that. So it's definitely one of the first two or three uh, writings that we have of early Christianity. Of course, this is looking at it through a historical lens when you can actually date them. And of course, this assumes a dating of the Gospels probably at the earliest in the 60s. And so Galatians is probably dated to the early 50s, something like that, late 40s for Thessalonians. So, yeah, this is actually our earliest glimpse of what uh, you and I would call Christian. And what's fascinating about that is that um, if we're really honest about the text, it's not actually an early representation of Christian. It's actually Judaism in the first century. Mm. Um, what do you mean by that, Jeremy? Uh, well, it's kind of like um, what we do know is this was a Jew writing it. And if we want to know, let me give an example. If we want to know anything about uh, Pharisaic Judaism in the middle of the first century, the Apostle Paul is actually our most authoritative source on the subject. We don't really have any other writings of Pharisaic Judaism during this time period outside of Paul. What we do have, though, is someone who is a member of, the, uh, of, of within Judaism who had just so happened to accepted that this person whose name was Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So when we look back in time, you know, from where we are today, we, of course, say this is the earliest Christian writings we have. But 
at the time, this is not what we would have called this. Uh, in fact, Paul Paul never even uses the term Christian. He's he may not have even been familiar with the term. So just he never. So we don't see it in his writings at all. So kind of fascinating to think about it like that. So the the earliest references to the term Christian, as best we can determine, date to after the death of Paul. Mm. So it's not certain whether he was familiar with these terms or not. He may have been at some point, but we don't really have any evidence to, to suggest that or to prove it. And it's interesting, too, that knowing that maybe Galatians is one of the first documents we have from Paul mm-hmm. and one of the first yeah. books for the New Testament, like that book that you studied is also like, I feel like one of the harshest books from Paul. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and I think that... Um, I think that kind of goes into what I was talking about with uh, Paul using his his writings to persuade people. And in fact, um, one of the most interesting things about the letter to Galatians is uh, when Paul starts the letter, he appears to be starting it like he does his other letters. However, about two or three lines into a letter, Paul will usually have some type of thanksgiving prayer that he offers up to the people he's writing to. And Galatians... He does not. He basically starts out with a curse, a uh, he, and he does it twice. So some scholars have even made the guess, which is a pretty good one, that uh, Galatians as a whole was never intended to be just a friendly letter to a church. It was actually written specifically to be somewhat of a magical curse. If you think of it that way, it, it, it really, you know, it kind of changes the whole impression that you have about what the letter is supposed to be to begin with. Okay, I, I want to ask you about that because it is funny that I was actually reading through this um, Oxford commentary in the Bible, and it talks about how the book of Galatians, like there's like three big points where Paul's like, oh, you know, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And then there's there's the thing at the end, I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Like there's some very harsh language, right, in Galatians. And it's nothing yeah. like the comforting books of like Timothy. Right. Where it's like, oh, you know, he, how love, you know, how loving he is towards Timothy. And so, like, when you read those books, it's yeah. like, oh, what a compassionate, loving man, this Paul, like just caring for yeah. this young Timothy. <laughs> but then you read this first book of yeah. Galatians and it's like, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I wish those who unsettle you mm-hmm. would emasculate themselves. Like, what? What, what happened? Who is this Paul that I'm reading Galatians? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. It's it's uh and it's extremely harsh. I mean, you know, when we put on the the uh our twenty first century glasses, calling someone to emasculate themselves, that's is he really calling violence to, into their community? You know, and this is where you know if this this is where understanding that it is a letter, and if you understand the overall themes of the letter, all of a sudden it begins to. To make a little bit more sense, it's you know because it's it's kind of like um, what we would think of as a, a public presentation by a political figure, where it may not be fair for us to develop a theory of their uh, person or their personal habits, maybe at a certain level, but it's actually a rhetorical composition uh, for a specific purpose. Well, that's what we have here with this letter too. And it just so happens that the major theme of the writing of Galatians is that he's basically saying you must not circumcise uh, any of the Gentile members. So he plays with that idea a lot, Uh, maybe plays with it in what we would consider inappropriate ways, (laughs) like with the comment about (laughs) emasculation. Um, 
but that becomes a theme. You know, it's a theme of the entire letter. And uh, so that's where it becomes important to realize that it's kind of, uh, I think, of course, I think 2,000 years ago, they probably would have picked up and understood what he was getting up, getting at a lot quicker than we're able to. That therein lies the problem. And once again, I think that uh, what we're doing here is we're actually looking at this letter as a writing from 2,000 years ago. And rather than just, you know, immediately thinking that this text can speak to us directly in the 21st century, and that's where I'm kind of saying, no, there needs to be a pause. There needs, if, if you're going to do that, you need to really have some type of appreciation for a context, and uh, because it's quite different. <laughs> and I want to, I want to ask you about your comment about the magic eye. I, I would love to hear more about that because that's something I never heard before. Um, a lot of times when I've okay. read things about Galatians, it mainly focuses on the doctrine about Paul's arguing for justification by faith. That's the clear message. Yeah. You don't need the law. That's kind of the main theme of Galatians. So share with me yeah. uh, this, this perspective with magic. Once again, there are a number of things that we have preconceived notions about. One of them is that there is a there's actually a whole... Um, storyline that goes with this but that is there's a belief that magic is not a part of judaism okay it never has been and in fact if you read some of these texts from the hebrew bible you'll even see you know i think that they were even asked in ancient israel if they if there were sorcerers that sorcerers were worthy of being put to death things like that so there's this idea that within uh, ancient Israel or early Judaism that they don't do magic. Well, that's actually part of their own own rhetoric, uh, uh, fighting against it. But the truth of it is, is that there are lots of versions of um, Judaism, or you could even extend that to Christianity, that have components of magic within them. And so I was really curious about this idea about whether or not Paul really was... Uh, throwing down a curse against the Galatians. I mean, in the full implications of magic. And then in chapter 3, when, when we do have this line, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Well, literally, who has given you the evil eye? Who has put a curse on you, cursed you with, through their eyes? There's a whole massive thing mm. related to that, which is a pretty big part of the book. Um, but what was fascinating about this is that from Paul's point of view, it sounds like that he thought that somebody had come into Galatia after he had started those churches, and from Paul's point of view, had put some type of curse on them and clouded their vision, and they can no longer see clearly, and they were starting to do things that was bothering Paul. So then Paul comes in and writes this letter, Galatians, and it looks like it might be a counter curse. So, and when he when he says, who has bewitched you, or or who has given you the evil eye. The question is, does Paul really believe that someone did curse them? And I think when you start to unfold this, there's actually a cultural script all around this idea. Mm. And when you start to unfold it, you begin to realize that I really think Paul did believe that someone had come in and put a curse upon that church. And so it's part of his responsibility to undo that curse. And um, but just that whole idea of, of thinking about Paul in that way uh, within certain realms of Christianity or Judaism was sort of taboo. But sometimes it's like the evidence is looking at you and, it, and, it, and it's trying to scream at you and say, hey, 
I just talked about a curse here. That's what I'm really talking about here. But what oftentimes ends up happening is scholars will whitewash that and they'll call it, oh, that's just metaphorical. He didn't really mean that. He's just using that as a metaphor or an analogy. And what was really curious to me is I started to go back and look at a history of interpretation of that passage uh, about the bewitchment or the cursing. And what you see is for over a millennia, you see both interpretations. Uh, all throughout the early history of the church in the Byzantine area, era, all the way up to the Middle Ages, where um, people commenting on this text, some really did believe it was uh, a cursing. Others were like, mm, not so sure about that. Um, even up to Martin Luther, Martin Luther very much believed that uh, there was a demonic dimension that Paul was countering uh, in the letter, and he saw this as a, a live... Uh, counter curse but what happened that was fascinating was after the enlightenment period so we're talking about the 1800s early 1900s there were several commentaries that came out that were very definitive in their historical analysis of the text and they were certain that paul would not be offering up a true genuine uh, counter curse against a curse why because paul wouldn't have believed in such things and so, roughly a hundred years ago, we had a push away from, a heavy push away from, this idea that Paul could have been mystical about it. Okay, we're going to pause right here, and we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Jeremy Wade Barrier in part two, where he talks with us about how to choose the proper study tools for studying the Bible, ways for us to read the Bible devotionally, and what to do with those passages that don't agree with us. So that's next time. And before we go, I want to share with you four takeaways from today's discussion, as well as this week's challenge. Number one, the book of Galatians isn't a letter of love and affection. It's a bombshell. Paul is ticked. He's super upset because the churches that he helped establish in Galatia were moving away from righteousness by faith, and starting to believe that righteousness could come through works of the law, especially circumcision. He calls the Galatians stupid for thinking this way and wishes that people circulating these false doctrines would be emasculated. I mean, Paul is furious. I mean, like, upset. Number two, it's important to be a critical reader of the Bible. That means asking questions. It means that you're not always going to agree with everything that you're reading. That's a healthy way of viewing scripture, and it's a healthy way of dealing with those really troubling bits. Number three, let's be curious about the latest research on the Bible. The latest scholarship can help us improve our knowledge of the Bible, as well as the cultural background and meanings of the text. When you encounter texts that upset you or don't make sense, realize that these ancient writings were written for a specific culture and had a specific purpose in mind. You don't have to agree or disagree, but you should question the meaning. And number five, Paul gives us an example of what a passionate life looks like. I mean, he was all in, 100% committed to preaching the gospel, launching churches, and nurturing their growth. He wasn't perfect and obviously had some very hurtful views, but he was trying his best to help others in their spiritual journey. And I think that's very encouraging. So this week's challenge is pretty simple. I want to encourage you all to take 20 minutes to read the book of Galatians. Yeah, it's a very short book. It just takes 20 minutes to read. And I think what's important about Galatians is that it's one of the earliest writings that we have of the New Testament church. And it gives us insight into the mind of Paul and also some of the challenges that the early church had in understanding how the law of God should be used. And when you're done, 
Write a few sentences down on what you think of Paul and this letter. Could he have been more compassionate, more loving? I'm really curious in your thoughts. Let me know in the comments or message me on Instagram or Twitter. You can find me at Delgado Podcast. Oh, and if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help the show get more visibility. Thank you so much. And we'll talk next week. Take care.